The angel's words to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Indeed, worthy is the name. I didn't mention earlier, I should have Stephen is at Ebenezer preaching for me today so I could be here to do communion with you, and I thank you for the invitation to be here. So we come to the Lord's table and prepare for it. We're going to be looking at first, excuse me, 2 Kings 17. I invite you to keep that open as we go through it today. It's 2 Kings 17, and I'm going to read it. It's kind of a long passage, 1 through 23. And the opening part is even a little harder because it's talking about a bunch of names here and what's happening to Israel because of their sin. But let us hear God's word with reverence. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to Saul, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river Gojan in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtowers to a fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill, and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. And they served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he had warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to be like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. <clears throat> they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants and the prophets. So Israel was carried into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. 
Father, this is your word and always our prayer that you would lead us to Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen. As I was growing up many, many years ago, tennis was a big part of my life. Uh, my brother and I played and uh, we took lessons. My parents even took us to a professional tournament once or twice, so we got to see some of the really good tennis players play. But I enjoyed tennis. That's been a long time ago. My body can attest to that. But even after I married, Linda and I went one day, I think it was to the tennis court at Bellhaven in Jackson, just not really to play as much, but to hit the ball around. And I quickly, to my surprise, learned that she, she and her roommate played a different style of tennis. Uh, I'd hit the ball to her, and she would, if it was within reach, try to hit it back. She would not go after it. And, you know, the game doesn't work well that way, but it's all right. The point is she knew that in tennis you really are supposed, if, some, if the ball's in your court, you're supposed to try to get to it and return the shot. And that's true of any tennis player, be it amateurs, all the way up to the professionals uh, who are playing for the big money and so forth. That when the ball is in our court, it calls for us to make a proper response, to do the right thing, try to get it back over. Now hold that thought a minute and let me give you a rule of thumb for studying scripture. You probably already know this, but anytime we study God's word, always look for God in the text. I mean, it's his word. What is he telling us about himself, his attributes, his character? What warnings is he giving? What promises or encouragements and so forth? What instructions? And if you do that when you come to this passage in 2 Kings, what we find, if I can return to my tennis analogy now, is that God, I don't mean any reverence by this, but God as it were, is on the other side of the net and has hit the ball into our court. And the million-dollar question for us all is what will we do? How will we respond or how have we responded? Now, in tennis, if you know about tennis, you know they're what they call a volley. Unless you get an ace serve on the other person, you serve to that person, they're going to try to return your shot. And then you're going to return theirs and vice versa. That's called the volley. I want us to look at three volleys here in this chapter. Volley number one. God takes the initiative. What did God do? It's what he always does. He showed mercy to his unworthy children. Verse 7 ends out. It's all this stuff that happened in those first few verses about Assyria and being carried off and so forth. He said all this happened because they sinned against the Lord. Look at the last part of that verse. And remember, it tells us what we're looking for, what it tells us about God. They sinned against the Lord their God. And here's how he's described. The God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, what did God do? He did the merciful thing. He delivered his people from that bondage. And that is our God, is it not? The God who delivers his people to this very day from bondage to sin and from the power of death through his own son's redeeming work at the cross, which is what we celebrate here in the Lord's Supper today. So in Egypt, they cried for deliverance, and the God of grace gave them just that. And now the ball's in their court. How did they respond? Two words, ingratitude and apostasy. Apostasy means that unbelief and disobedience, turning away from God. Ben just talked about we need to turn to God when we sin. They're turning away in their sins. Uh, they follow after it says, the other gods had walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them. In Ralph Davis's wonderful commentary on Second Kings, he said this is where amazing grace meets massive apostasy. God had warned the people. He had delivered them and warned them, don't be like these people. And he tells them why. In Deuteronomy 7, let me read just a portion of that. It says, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land. He's telling this on the front end before they even get to the tennis court, so to speak. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land when you're entering to possess it uh, and shall clear away many nations before you, then you shall utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them. 
Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your daughters and sons away from me to follow and serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars. The very thing they didn't do. They were building the altars back up. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn the graven images with fire. So that's what he had told them. To. He said, don't be like the other people. Why? Verse 6 of that passage goes on to say, for this reason, don't be like the world because you're my children. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Remember, I will be your God and you will be my people. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, get this, has chosen you. For nothing in us, nothing good we have or we didn't have it. He has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. We're called to be different. We're made new creatures in Christ. Paul says when he's talking uh, his letter to the Corinthians, says, what harmony hath Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? It's not that we're better than them in ourselves. We're just as unworthy as they are, but we've been made better and righteous in Christ. We've been bought with his blood, and therefore we should live a different kind of life, you see. John, in his first epistle, says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we have to, you know, Christ says, Be in the world, but don't be of it. It's not that we don't love the good things of the world. God pronounced it good, but the things that are sinful in the world, he says, don't be involved. And we wonder how different... How much of the world is actually in us instead of Christ? How much are they seeing of him? Do we really look different from the non-Christian, at least in the normal thing, the way we talk, the kind of movies we watch, the jokes we tell, the way we spend our time and money? Uh, MIT did a study some years ago, and they reported that on a dark night, a single candle flame could be seen in the darkness up to a distance of about 1.7 miles. Now, why could that little flame be seen so little? but it was totally different from its environment, its background. And that's how we should be in a world of sin. This law. Uh, not us, but Christ should be the one shining through us for others to see and be pointed to him. But Israel didn't do that. Uh, they uh, had God's grace. They had his deliverance from Egypt, and it was met with apostasy. Instead of being grateful for his grace, it was a grace that was rejected. And we need to stop and ask, what about our relationship to Jesus Christ? Do we have that relationship that simply says, I want Jesus to get me out of Egypt whenever I find myself in Egypt. But after that, uh, I'll take it from there until I need him again, until there's another Egypt somewhere down the road. Or do we really give ourselves in gratitude and faithfulness and commitment, weakly and humbly and failingly, but do we give ourselves to Christ, trusting in him who gave us all for us? Uh, I've told you years ago when I was preaching here, probably more than once, I told you the example of uh, Japan having a terrible earthquake in the U.S., typical of the U.S., and it should. They responded. Other nations probably did too. But the U.S. sent humanitarian aid to the country of Japan, and the emperor wrote a personal letter to the president of the United States in which he said, the people of Japan, thank you. The people of Japan will never forget. And I think he was sincere. I think he meant it. But on December 7, 1941, the people of Japan did forget. And the question is, do we do that? One of the key elements in the Lord's Supper is gratitude. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering who I am, the names of Jesus we just heard, and who we are as sinners who don't deserve, you know, the time of day, much less his grace. Do this in remembrance of me and what I've done for you. For when we remember the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, that we're going to be more like that woman in Luke 7 who bucked the world 
And like her, we're going to kneel down at our Savior's feet and anoint, anoint them with the tears of grateful love. So the ball is in our court. We're sinners who should be in hell right now. And the, God has sent his son to save us. You've heard the gospel message again and again. The question is, what have we done with this? How have we responded? Well, that was volley one. God delivers them. They're uh, ungrateful and turn away in apostasy. Volley two. We read that in verse 14. Excuse me, verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. That's his grace all over again. Just when we, as reading this, might have expected, All right, God's going to get them now. We expect thunderbolts and fire to fall from heaven and consume those ingrates. Because that's what they deserve, just like we do. But instead, mercy falls from heaven in the form of loving warnings. So God responds to their ungratefulness and apostasy by graciously warning them to turn to them before it's too late. Now the ball's in their court. How do they respond? Verse 14, however, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And you have these verses that follow. It says, uh, verse 15, they rejected his statutes and followed vanity. Verse, uh, that's verse 15. Verse 16, they forsook all his commandments. And again, they made Asherah. They made the calves. They, they offered incense on the high hills. They uh, rejected his commandments. And they even uh, committed their children to the fire as a sacrifice and so forth. Doing terrible things in the sight of the Lord. They responded with a stiff-necked rebellion. Verse 14, they did not listen but stiffened their neck. It's a reference there to Jeremiah. In 1723, we read, God says, Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. It's the image of an oxen having a yoke put upon them uh, to plow a field or to carry a heavy load, and the ox is resisting the restrictions of the yoke. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says, Sinful man sees God's witness all about him, and what does he do? He suppresses or we will resist the truth, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And that's what they're doing here. And yet Jesus says, you know my yoke. Yes, it's a yoke. But you take it upon you. For my yoke is easy. Not the Christian life. He's not saying that's easy. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when you trust me and commit yourself to me, you may go through hell on earth, so to speak, through all kinds of horror and cancers and losses and tears and tribulation. But I'll be the one leading you. I won't just go with you. I'll lead you through it, and I'll get you through it. And yet the world still rejects and doesn't follow them. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read these words. Behold the Lord your God, to him belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet, I mean, this is the God who owns it all, and yet listen to what it says. He doesn't even owe us the time of day. And it says, yet... On your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants, that's you and me, chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it, is this, as it is this day. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no more. What we should be doing is giving God a heart, willingly giving him our hearts. We won't do it perfectly, but giving ourselves to Jesus every day and trusting in him who gave us his son. He warns us. He gives us the gracious warning to trust to obey him, to turn from sins and trust in Jesus. The question is, are we doing it? Uh, Linda was hearing R.C. Sproul not long ago, I think, in a podcast or something, but he made a statement she told me, and, and I, it stuck with me, and it's such a good one. It's very simple, but it's profound. 
He said there is a big difference in believing in God and believing God. Big difference between believing in God, that he exists. The devil does that. A lot of people who are going to be in hell know that already. Big difference believing in God and believing him, which means to take him at his word, to believe his word is true, and by his grace to act upon that word. Remember the man on Mount St. Helens? It was on May 18, 1980, when Mount St. Helens erupted and he was killed in the lava flow. His name was Harry S. Excuse me, not Harry Harry R. Truman. Uh, he was the owner of Mount St. St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake near the base of the mountain. He had been warned, like everybody else, they get off the mountain, and for some reason he didn't. I don't know, he just didn't believe the authorities and thought they were blowing smoke. <laughs> Probably bad play on words. Or, uh, sorry about that. Or he erupted in stupidity. No, let's get away from it. I don't know if he just didn't believe them or if he just didn't care. But either way, he didn't heed the warning and he perished. And the world's like that. Some don't believe God or maybe they think, well, maybe it's true, but I don't really care. But listen to what God says about those who don't heed his warning. From the book of Hebrews. See to it that you not, do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn from him. Who warns from heaven? Again, the ball's in our court. We're sinners who need a Savior. Christ is that Savior. And the question is, what by God's grace have we done? And lastly, and very quickly, volley three. In tennis, this is the match point. This is when the game's over and you've won. Except it's not us, it's God who wins. What did God do? Verse 18 and 20 tells us. Verse 18 says, So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. Literally, that's from his face. Verse 20, And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers, and he cast them out of his sight, literally, out of his face. Remember the ironic blessings, the one I usually use and plan to use with you today? The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord cause what? His The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the worst calamity of all, you see. He removes them from his face. Of all the horrors of hell, and hell can't even be comprehended how bad it's going to be. But one of the worst things for those who are there is they will be forever cast away from the presence of the living and holy and loving God. The one of whom the psalmist says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And yet we live in a world of people who say, no, no, I want to keep God away. Like Psalm 2 says, we won't have this God or this man reign over us. That's what Israel did, and you saw what happened. So God, how does he respond in volley 3? He removes them from his face. What's the response of the people? There isn't one. Because once the volcano erupts, it's too late to take action. The man in Luke 16, he goes to hell and he wants Lazarus to come down with his finger dipped in water and cool his tongue. And Abraham says, too late. So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, now let me say that in tennis, be it Wimbledon or the Davis Cup or the U.S. Open or anything like that, or even Lyndon me hitting the ball back and forth when she's willing to hit it, back at Bellhaven. How one plays the game, or regardless of how one plays the game, and no, guys, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but at the end of the day, it's just a game. Now, if it's the U.S. Open, it's a big game, and it may involve a lot of money and trophies and endorsements, but it's still, compared to eternity, 
held up against that. It's just a game. But when Almighty God puts the ball in our court and calls us to repent of our sins and come to him in faith, to Jesus Christ and trust in him and him alone, it's not a game. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life or eternal death. Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Or as the call to worship we read says, seek the Lord while he may be found. See, before the volcano erupts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And here's that sweet gospel. For he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you've never come to Christ, in Christ's name I urge you with all my heart, by his grace, and you can only do it by his grace and spirit, but turn from your sins to Christ. Trust in him, for he receives sinners like you and me. And if you have done it, may we join our hearts together at the Lord's table in just a moment to commune with the one who loved us enough to save us from the greatest bondage of all by giving himself over to death. To God be the glory. Father, prepare our hearts now for your sweet worship as we continue at the Son's table. May we come only, not if we're perfect in ourselves, but we're not, but come only because we know we've been made perfect in Jesus Christ. We're trusting in him and his sacrifice, not in ourselves. And if we've never done that, Father, work in our hearts to the end that we won't find peace or rest until we find it in Jesus. And then may we follow him. We thank you that you gave us warnings and that you gave us grace and that by your spirit you gave us the power and the ability to come. You're the one who drew us to yourself. We're saved by grace, not of ourselves. It is your gift. And we love and adore you for it. And thank you and ask your blessing on us now in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. The hymn is number 509.